Hello humans, welcome back to my game Fiction Addiction, the podcast where me and a guest take a deep, profound excursion into the greatest stories, characters and fictional worlds of video games. If you love and lose yourself in games beyond just online leaderboards and battle royales and shooty shooty bang bang, you're in the right place. I'm your host, IGN UK's Amy Mallet, and I'm bloody psyched for this one. Can you not tell? It might be that new sweetener in my tea, to be honest, but this game we are covering is quite possibly one of the greatest and most loved titles we've ever covered on this podcast. It's the one, the only, Half-Life. I'll set the scene. It's November 19th, 1998. A little-known studio called Valve released its first game on Windows. Fun fact, there were other names considered for the studio, one of which was Fruitfly Ensemble. In a parallel world somewhere, Valve Corporation is called Fruitfly Ensemble. Anyway, the game was Half-Life, a delightfully twitchy FPS with a dark sense of humour, combining elements of both sci-fi and horror. The story follows a young scientist-slash-physicist named Gordon Freeman, who works for the kinda shady underground research facility Black Mesa. After an experiment goes, to use the Latin, tits up, Gordon must attempt to survive and contain an all-out alien invasion from the planet Zen. It's quite possibly one of the shittest days at work anyone has ever had. Half-Life did many things differently for its time. Using scripted sequences to tell an engrossing narrative was quite unusual for the FPS genre. It won over 50 Game of the Year awards, and by 2008, only a decade after its initial release, it had sold over 9 million copies. It's credited, naturally, with being one of the best games of all time and one of the most influential FPS SSSs of all time. And it kickstarted not only the rest of the Half-Life series, including comedy gem Portal, but birthed a massive portion of the PC modding community as we know it. Honestly, it's impossible to overstate just how big of an impact this game had on gaming as a whole. It even had a gorgeous fan-made remake last year called Black Mesa. I'm also psyched to unveil that this month we have a brand new guest joining my nerdy roster in the inimitable form of Benjamin Rose, a keen indie game designer, partner success manager, Piers Brosnan's movie stand-in, you probably think I'm making that up, I'm not, and a dear friend of mine for many, many years now. He knows the game intimately, has a lot to say about it, and is the perfect co-host for a console kiddo like me who came to the party rather late, to say the least. I am proud to say, though, it was the first game I installed on my gaming PC that I built earlier this year, and I can safely say it was worth the wait. Whether I'll remain a PC convert, though, remains to be seen. So without further ado, grab a cup of tea and let's get stuck into this absolute classic. I personally relate to Gordon Freeman more than many video game protagonists. As someone who is not a fan of creepy insects, the finesse with which this man can wield a crowbar (laughs) in the face of anything that crawls is just... The speed he hits things with is insane. I recorded the first encounter I had with a head crab. Oh, hello. What are you? Jesus! (laughs) 
yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much the only way to play the game is just <laughs> absolute mad panic with a crowbar. Oh my god! So Ben, welcome to MGFA. Thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Describe where you are right now, because you've uh, you're actually not in your own house, which um, we should elaborate. You're not a home invader. You are in someone's house uh, consensually. Yes. And um, you had to build some kind of soundproofing situation in order to do the podcast with me today. Yes, I've essentially built a work nest in someone else's flat because we're in the middle of uh, moving not only house, but also country. So everything I own is in bags, except for the things I'm using to talk to you right now. Nice. Imagine if someone came home and you're just under a desk <laughs> with a towel over your head yelling about uh, head crabs. Honestly, that's not far from the truth. <laughs> Because it's your first time on the podcast, for the audience to get to know you a little bit more, I've got a Half-Life themed question for you. In the spirit of Gordon Freeman, what was the worst day at work you've ever had and why? Okay, worst day at work? Well, I used to, uh, one of my many previous lives, I was a teacher. And there was an occasion in which my class of lovely, adorable little year threes decided that what they really wanted to do was lock me out of the classroom barricading the door with tables and chairs. It pretty much was almost me having to crawl through the vents to actually get in and teach them anything. Oh, wow, Jesus. Did you get a crowbar or was that not acceptable? You know what? I think that's probably illegal. I'm actually pretty sure that I did actually encounter an alien once in my workplace. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you and uh, and your gorgeous wife, uh, Tara, one of my other friends, this story, but um, I used to work in a coffee shop. I think you guys came in quite a lot, actually, when uh, it was in Leicester and used to come in and get coffee and stuff. And uh, I had a guy approach me because I was always behind the counter because uh, I just don't stop chatting all the time. So they were like, oh, you can just talk to the customers. Um, I didn't actually make any coffee the whole time I was there. But uh, this guy came over and he gave me a bag of crisps and a uh, like a little bottle of Tropicana orange juice. And he put it on the, on the counter and uh, I charged him for it, you know, run it through the till, gave him his receipt. And then he just sort of looked at me like really concerned. And I was like, are you okay? Like, do you need anything? Uh, do you want to know where the loos are or anything? You know, have you, have you had an accident? And he just sort of went, do I not get a spoon? <laughs> and I, I looked from the packet of crisps to the Tropicana and was just like, no. <laughs> like, is that the right answer? Like, I don't think you do need a spoon. And he just went, I always eat my crisps with a spoon. At this point, I thought I was going to get murdered. So I just kind of went, yeah, here, have a, have a spoon. <laughs> And then lo and behold, this creature, who I can only describe as something from the planet Zen, walked over to a booth, sat in it, took out his spoon and uh, ripped open his bag of crisps and began eating them with a spoon. With a spoon. I half expected him to pour the Tropicana into the packet of crisps, but That's he didn't. That's what I was going to say. Is this some sort of like alternative cereal? He came back to me afterwards and he was like, um, do you know the reason I do that? And I was like, well, I, I feel like you must tell me otherwise, you know. <laughs> Um, this story is never going to make any sense. It doesn't anyway. And he said, um, it's so that I don't get all the crisp, uh, what's it called? Like the crisp dust on my hands. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> that I, happened. I, I really want to respond to this story, but I, I can't think of any words. <laughs> this guy, he's a fan. You know he's a fan. He's listening somewhere and he's like, oh, crisp girl. <laughs> so getting onto Half-Life then, what does this game mean to you? It means a lot. I mean, this is, I, I, I will admit, I did come to the party slightly late, even myself. 
Uh, but I got the, they did a pack which came with all the expansions and the first release of Counter-Strike. And that was my first introduction to the game. Right. So when was that? Uh, this would have, when I actually got hold of it, would have been sometime, I think, in 2000, maybe 2001. Okay. Um, so a, a little late to the party, but I was still very much there for the modding scene and mm. for everything that Half-Life became. Because yeah. the, the game itself is... Still a classic, still a phenomenal, and we'll we'll get into everything everything that that entails. But the the real story of Half Life, in my opinion, is everything that it spawned. Everything from Counter Strike uh, onto games like uh, Subnautica, for example, the team for which was originally formed for Natural Selection, which was a mod that I played to death back in the day. So it's really, to me, it filled the majority of my teenage years with just an infinite amount of content. And just for gaming and the industry as a whole, I don't think we'd be in the same place if it wasn't for this game. I completely agree. The, the world kind of gets divided into games before Half-Life and games after. It, the amount of content that spawned because of it, the impact that it's had on video games as a medium is astronomical. Mm. Um, and I mean, even things like, you know, like the Stanley Parable and stuff like that, like there are so many iterations of, it's almost a very self-aware game in that it's spread itself. It's sowed its wild seeds through the industry. This thing is alive. Oh, absolutely. Moment I finished it, I this was back in the day when you had one game. So I the moment I finished it, I started playing it again. And then I found out, hey, people have made mods for this and people have made not only like levels and individual packs, but just entire new games. So it really, it really did. When I say it filled most of my teenage years, it, it, it did. It is literally the gift that kept on giving for you in many ways. I, I find it hard to relate to that because obviously, you know, being a console kid, like that's very much the limit for me. One game was one game, but the modding community, that must have blown your mind at like 11 years old. It did. And it actually, that was part of the reason that I first got into trying to make my own games. I was mm. messing around in, I think the editor back then was called Worldcraft. And yeah, like like messing around making levels and stuff. Never anything that was particularly grand or, or went anywhere really. But actually being able to dig into the, the guts of a game and start fiddling so easily is or was to my, to my young mind just absolutely insane. I came to the party very, very late. Um, and by late, I mean like a couple of months ago <laughs> when I first started playing Half-Life. But I actually only built a gaming PC this year and I've only ever had console all this time. So I knew, I always knew it was one that I was going to play when I finally got my hands on a PC. And I remember saying to one of my colleagues at work, I was like, oh, I've got the PC now. It's all built. And they were like, what are you going to play first? You're going to play Cyberpunk? No, oh, I'm going to play Half-Life. And they were like, you do realise you could like shoot for the stars, you know? It's uh, so over overpowered for that purpose but I was like nah, I just really want to play it it's the one thing I've always been intrigued by and obviously there's the remake as well which came out last year 2020 Black Mesa have you played it what are your thoughts yes I haven't completed it but I have got uh quite a lot of the way through without going into too much uh and, and making this more about that than than the original Half-Life it is a very faithful reimagining, but with modern sensibilities. So obviously you have uh, a huge graphical upgrade. Uh, it looks a lot more like um, the later Half-Life episodes or, or Alex than it does the original, but very much um, the majority of level layouts are the same, but where they're not, it's because they've changed the design to include 
newer elements. So there are physics puzzles, which obviously don't really exist in the original. Yes, I think I watched a playthrough of Gonark's Lair just because I really wanted to see... Uh, I don't know why I wanted to see it. You know, it's like a car crash. You can't look away. But I was like, I want to see this nightmare fuel in, you know, the kind of reimagined faithful modern graphics. Um, and... It is stunning. But yeah, you've got those puzzles that kind of like you have to do a few things to trigger boss fights and stuff. It's not as simple as you just spawn in with a giant creature. How far did you did you get into it? So uh, with Black Mesa, I'm around the two thirds mark at the moment. I am really enjoying it and I am indefinitely going to go back and finish it after we probably immediately after we finish this conversation, to be honest. <laughs> You'll be so hyped. You'll be like, yes. You've got me back in the Half-Life mood now and I can't. I can't stop thinking about it. Just uh, for anyone listening, because this is something I've been wondering, what is the correct order to play the games in? Because I think this is something I was Googling extensively when I was thinking about getting into the series. So, of course, you start with Half-Life 1. Yep, nailed it. That's pretty easy. There are the two expansions, which is Opposing Force and Blue Shift. Those are sort of canon, sort of not. So in Opposing Force, you play as one of the soldiers. They introduce a lot of things that are not referenced at all in any of the following games. So there's a whole additional alien race that's not referenced at all. So it's really debatable as to whether those are canon or not. Interestingly, both expansions made by Gearbox, now famous for Borderlands. Then there's the Half-Life 2, uh, which is a uh, absolute beast of a, of a video game without without any doubt. I don't know if this is like a uh, a moment that divides men, but uh, would you prefer the first or the second mainline instalment? I do prefer Half-Life 2. As a as a game to replay, uh, I think it has more, more interactivity. It has more going for it in terms of obviously visuals, but also the world is expanded. The story is expanded. Everything is, everything feels so much larger. I suppose what you'd say actually is that Valve don't make games that don't break the mold. And every time they make a game, the industry changes. Imagine just sitting that pretty on top of on top of gaming and uh, innovation that well that every single thing you do creates a landslide. The pressure on Valve, actually, if you think about it, must be immense. There's perfectionism, isn't there? And then there's like, this has to be groundbreaking, or it's going to risk undoing everything we've worked for. When you when you get to Alex, and I'm sure you will, but when you get there, the even the way that they use VR is so different to every other VR game. Um, but to finish answering your question, you have, there were meant to be three episodes, um, but Valve don't make things that have a three in them. They're allergic to the number three. I mean, obviously, even Back for Blood is kind of like a funny play on the idea that the number three just doesn't exist to Valve. That's a lot of the original Left 4 Dead developers, isn't it? But just exactly. sort of on their own, doing their own little thing. But yeah, so you've got to play Half-Life 2, Episode 1, Episode 2, and then... What you have to do if you want to be canonically accurate is do nothing for about 10 years <laughs> and then play Half-Life Alex. Okay. When I'm 40, I can probably afford, afford a, um, a VR headset as well, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. fair enough. All right, wicked. That's really good. That's good to know. I mean, I do share your crush on the game for sure. I've absolutely loved it. In fact, if anything, I think I said this to you the other day when I texted you, but Gordon Freeman is a bit of a dilf. I see what you mean. I do see what you mean. I mean, as a as a white guy with hair and glasses and a beard. Inclined to agree, I imagine. Inclined to agree. Fully inclined to agree. He's just, you know, he's brains, but somehow also incredible at killing everything. You know, he and he is a dad because we find that out uh, in the there's a little locker that you go in at the beginning, isn't there? And he's got a little like photo of a baby and it's like, oh, total dilf, total dilf. I mean, he is a he's a theoretical physicist at the age of 27 who's also somehow capable of using heavy assault weaponry 
sprinting about 25 miles an hour and also jumping however far he can jump. Just like that security guard at the very beginning, I'd buy him a beer. So without further ado, are we ready to uh, head into Black Mesa? I thought you'd never ask. In that case, you're going to need to press the spoiler alarm. Here I go. Spoiler alert, if you don't want plot details, get out of here, because we dish in the dirt. We are about a blurt, so if you ain't played it yet, spare your poor ears, and no one gets hurt. We know you'd be pissed if you're in the midst of a really great game, and we told you the twist, or told you who died, and how much we cried, but feel kind of bad for derailing your ride. We've been there before, and it is a shit out when some total n- posts the ending on Twitter. So back away now, and you won't get scorned, because spoilers are coming, and you have been warned. Good morning, and welcome to the Black Mesa Transit System. This automated train is provided for the security and convenience of the Black Mesa Research Facility personnel. The time is 8.47 a.m. So before we get started on Chapter 1, Black Mesa Inbound, and we talk about that really iconic opening, I need to come clean about something, Benjamin. (laughs) What have you done? It's so funny that this is like a, a genuine concern of mine because I do feel like there is this, and maybe this is something else we should talk about on another podcast, but the elitism of games can be something that can be quite crippling for players sometimes. The idea of like, oh, you know, you didn't play it that way. That's totally not how it should be played. Ra rah, rah. I played it on PC for about an hour. <laughs> I mean, that you finished it very quickly if you played it for an hour. <laughs> I just want you to know before you before you disown me and never speak to me again and take me off the Christmas card list, I tried, okay? I am not a keyboard and mouse person and I make no attempt to hide it. I've never been raised with a PC. I've never owned a PC capable of playing any games until 2021. When I started playing Half-Life, it became very apparent that this is an FPS. You know, you need to have fast reactions. You need to be on it. And honestly, I look like piano cat having a seizure when I try to play keyboard and mouse like it just doesn't work I you are good at what you're used to and having been raised on consoles I started I had a Sega Mega Drive when I was about three it just didn't feel right and I mean one of my I think I said this on an earlier podcast but one of my uh, IGN colleagues once described me using keyboard and mouse as and I quote frankly horrific (laughs) (laughs) so I started it and I honestly I got quite far I felt like my mum you know no offence to my mum I adore her but when you see my mum touch anything game related it's like she has to really look at it she has to concentrate Mm -hmm. it was just sucking and I wasn't enjoying it so in the end I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to carry on playing it on Steam, but I'm going to get myself a controller. So I got my Xbox One Elite controller, plugged that baby in, did a bit of Googling and realised that Half-Life 1 on Steam is not compatible with a controller. Not to be deterred, your girl went and got a mapping program off Tinterwebs and started mapping the keys to my controller so that I could play it with a controller. And it was just so janky. It was so, so jank. I respect the effort so much. Thank you. After about an hour and probably two or three glasses of wine, I went on Music Magpie and I bought it for £2.50 on PS2. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sorry. I mean, I, you know what? I'm, I, will, I, will, I will allow this. I will allow this. I think, especially with something like this, the experience is, 
is the whole thing. It is, it is. And the thing is, I just wanted to enjoy it. I wanted to feel like I was actually playing and the con- the controller thing wasn't really working out for me on PC. And I was like, look, I appreciate that this is a 2001 port. I know it's not going to be as authentic as it could physically be, but damn, it's close, you know? And it, it is the game that was intended. And I, I just feel like I... I really enjoyed it on PS on PS um PS2 and I have got Black Mesa downloaded so I can always go through and relive this awesome reimagining with the controller because Black Mesa has controller support. You should. Um but yeah, I was just like, you know what? I'm I want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy it. I'm just curious whether it would actually be a lot harder on PlayStation actually because obviously it wasn't designed with that in mind. If anything, I actually succeeded in making my life considerably harder because an FPS is designed for a mouse you know you want that unrivaled accuracy and actually I wasn't I was great at shooting it was just the the keys really messed me up you know I like to have everything in my hand and it was just strange having to try and like be very dexterous with like my keys where I wasn't very dexterous naturally so it was the movement that kind of let me down the accuracy of a mouse but with a with a controller (laughs) especially PS2 uh, and we're talking an old PS2 controller that is considerably battered. Classic. Classic is the word you want to use. Very classic. Yeah, classic, slightly battered. Like, I did find that the joysticks didn't give me the accuracy that I wanted. And if anything, it made the shootouts pretty challenging. Um, and the platforming a little bit all over the place as well. I mean, fir- first person platforming is a is a whole subject that I have a lot to say about. But um, <laughs> it's, I imagine it was even harder with with your setup it was yeah it was I, yeah. but I got through it I finished it and actually there is uh, there is a moment that I want to talk about uh, later in the game that actually again bit me in the arse and I thought to myself oh my god I've angered the PC gods this is why this is happening but it did actually glitch in uh, Gonark's lair and I, I couldn't I couldn't well I, I say I couldn't kill it I emptied uh, about five RPG rounds into its sack when it was just sat there and it didn't do anything. Oh, really? <laughs> and then I realised that a, a quick Google revealed that apparently Gonark can get stuck in the PS2 version. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, we're skipping ahead a bit here, but what you're supposed to do is just uh, chuck all your explosives in there and um, and it actually destroys the floor and then it falls through the floor and you can proceed to the next area that way. But um, yeah, I did really feel like I... I thought I'd feel like a speedrunner for doing that, but I felt like a glitchy bitch. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, let's let's get back to to business. So, the opening is insane. Like it is so beautifully cinematic. <laughs> I have seen it on my travels through the world of gaming and many years of being a nerd, and it's just so well written. Immediately, it makes me think because I have played Portal, uh, both Portals. The the writing and the wit is just unparalleled. A reminder to all Black Mesa personnel. Regular radiation and biohazard screenings are a requirement of continued employment in the Black Mesa Research Facility. Missing a scheduled urinalysis or radiation checkup is grounds for immediate termination. Those announcement tannoys as you're going through into the facility and Mm. you're getting everything from, you know, if you know someone who could work for Black Mesa... (laughs) to like all these different black humor warnings it's it's so so good that opening it takes you through effectively a lot of what you will be playing through later on yeah you get to pass through the desert canyons you get to pass through huge like sludge filled areas and actually what you'll see is a lot of these places are already starting starting to go wrong yes there's already leaks there's already sparks like this is not a good day at work for gordon 
No, absolutely not a good day of work. That's the thing. Your first impression. So it's 8.47am and Gordon is on his way to a test chamber for a day of work. He's a theoretical physicist and you don't exactly know the ins and outs of his job just yet, but you know that he's obviously part of the Black Mesa research team. And yeah, this um, sort of tram ride through... Uh, the Black Mesa facility is weirdly like it's kind of like it's a small world after all at Disneyland except everything is kind of going tits up and you can see like the spillages you can see like you know there's um, a machine isn't there that sort of gets stuck in the way of the tram like your immediate impression of Black Mesa is that I don't think these guys really know what they're doing it's not slick is it? (laughs) No it isn't and it, it does it does a very good job of building a sense of just a slight dread the first time you play it Exactly. And it's impressive enough that it's all underground as well. You know, you you sort of it's a very strange work environment in that uh, you obviously don't really see anyone else. And when you do, it's a very fleeting glimpse. Um, You see another tram at one point. Mm. And this is where you first see what will probably go on to be one of the most enigmatic and beloved game characters and the creepiest as well of all time. And that is the character known as G-Man, who is standing in the tram with his briefcase. At first, he didn't even strike me as being weird because I was just like, oh, that's just another employee. I, I mean, I only noticed him maybe my third or fourth time through in that in that train. Uh, I mean, the first time you play it, you don't even think of anything of it. It's just, it's just a guy. You don't even, doesn't even cross your mind to think about it. Exactly. Yeah. An NPC holding a briefcase. I mean, it's a, it's a corporate environment to some degree, of course. Yeah. The other character that you meet along the way, uh, trying to get in through one of the security doors, and this is actually, I believe, where the Blue Shift expansion begins. Yes. Is Barney, one of the security guards. I didn't spot him. Did you see him? I I imagine you played it so much that you probably knew it so intimately. I mean, I have to say the first, certainly the first half of the first half life, that's a weird sentence, um, (laughs) is more or less burned into my memory at this point. Were you apprehensive? Were you excited? Like, what was your feeling as a player about, like, entering this kind of freaky-looking facility? Well, I, I, all I knew about it going in, because I, as I say, I played it I played it a few years late. All I knew about it going in, really, was that it was award-winning to an insane degree. And that whatever was about to happen was going to be amazing. In terms of expectations, I knew there were going to be aliens somewhere along the line. The thing that it does so well is just this slow build of tension and it allows you to really explore. And and the other thing that Half-Life does, which we haven't even mentioned yet, is that it never, except for one small moment, which we will, I'm sure, mention, never, ever takes control away from you. Yes. Yeah, that was something that I think for an FPS at the time, the fact that you were told this story and you never had your control relinquished from Gordon you felt really attached to him Mm. like especially at one key moment later on which we will discuss you feel almost so attached to him you're one person and I actually found Half-Life really interesting because there was so much that I didn't know that I assumed maybe Gordon did and there was like a weird uh, mishmash of the two characters like both you and him as a person because mm. you do spend so much time seeing everything through his eyes which was quite unusual for the time as far as i'm aware entirely unique for for that time mm. and this is something that continues throughout the series as well you are always introduced to things at the same time as gordon is yeah he yeah. pretty much never knows more than you so it, it's very much the ultimate blank slate protagonist you can really put any personality you want on him absolutely that's that's a really good point actually what you just made because yeah it's it's almost the there's no dramatic irony in that sense at all because you find everything out 
as he does and as he evolves as a character, uh, especially in the beginning, because obviously, you, you know, you just sort of turn up and you don't know what you're supposed to do. And you assume that he probably does <laughs> as a player, as a character. I guess we'll get more into that as we go. But he is a fascinating blank slate in that way. So we arrive and it's just another day at the office. You know, you're running through. Some of the scientists are kind of hanging out. Oh my God, did you dick around with the microwave? <laughs> of course I dicked around with the microwave. It's the first thing you have to do. My God, what are you doing? I was pressing everything and I was annoying all those scientists. <laughs> uh, just like, like, you know, getting cans out the vending machine and stuff like that. Like, this is very... It's very tame at this point, you know? It's it's almost weirdly mundane for a video game because it's something we've all experienced. We've all seen those tiled floors in an office kitchen, you know? And, and the weird little snippets of dialogue that you get. Mm. One of my favourites was one of the scientists was just like... Why do we all have to wear these ridiculous ties? <laughs> <laughs> little moments like that, funny, but also weirdly sort of self-aware, I guess, for a game. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the fact that there are only four men who work here. Yes. <laughs> just, just 25 copies of the same four men. That is something that I thought about, actually. Obviously, it's part of the limitations of the game, but there's almost an argument that maybe these people could actually be clones based on some of the shady stuff that Black Mesa were involved in, you know? I mean, I, I hadn't thought about that, actually. That's a, that's a good point. I mean, the, the future games in Half-Life 2 does make an effort to distinguish, oh no, this this guy is that particular guy that you met at that particular moment. Right, I see. And that does that does actually, like canonically, some of them do have names, but the vast majority are of, of them are just doctored generic. My favorite was probably the guy who is just like the costume of a scientist, the one with the gray, uh, the receding hair, gray, uh, like sort of hair around the back of his head, little glasses. He was probably my like favorite because he just looks so adorably geeky. Oh, he's great. He's great. <laughs> he's great. So heading through to the test chamber, your scientist friends come out with this incredibly ambiguously creepy line, which is they're waiting for you, Gordon in the test chamber. Test chamber. It fills you with dread and you don't really know why. So I think at this point I had very much come to the realization without really knowing anything about the, the storyline that something was gonna go wrong. I didn't know what. Um, but you go through to the test chamber. It's another day. If you dick around too long, the scientists get a little bit annoyed with you. You can get the Hev suit, which plays that awesome rave music when you get inside it. Oh, I love that bit. So cool, isn't it? It's almost like a weird nod to, you know, video games like Doom, I guess, that are kind of very obviously video games and they want you to see them as video games. And then you obviously go into the test chamber. Mm. This is where you got the anti-mass spectrometer and uh, you are told to insert this sample into it in order to uh, do something. It's never, it's almost weird because the scientists, you're never really privy to it. You assume that Gordon is, but there's almost like part of it, I don't know, I got this impression, maybe I'm wrong, but almost that Gordon doesn't even really know what's going on because the site like no one they mentioned something about how this sample they it took a, it took a while for them to get it or it was like a hard it, it was a real arduous task to get this sample mm. and it is all very hush hush even then it's like you almost feel like you shouldn't be there this is a rare opportunity for us this is the purest sample we've seen yet and potentially the most unstable now now if you follow standard insertion procedures everything will be fine i don't know how you can say that although i will admit that the possibility of a resonance cascade scenario is extremely unlikely 
likely. I remain uncomfortable with the... Gordon doesn't need to hear all this. He's a highly trained professional. You sort of get the impression Gordon is this kind of junior, just sort of grunt in a suit who just pushes things. Like His job is to walk into the office and push this thing. And then go home? I don't know. I mean, there's no indication of what he's supposed to do next. We never quite get that far, do we? No, of course, no, no. Because he climbs the ladder, presses the button, uh, the sample gets inserted into the machine, and boom, everything goes crazy. This is what's referred to, and you discover this only really in passing from a scientist, as a resonance cascade. So a portal is kind of ripped open between our world and an alien dimension, and surprise, surprise, the little shits start flooding in. This is where shit hits the fan and you are kind of you know, thrown into this event that basically is the catalyst for the entire game in that hell breaks loose in the Black Mesa facility and before you realise it, there are aliens everywhere and you are having to basically fight to survive and you as the player are completely in the dark here. What did you feel the first time this kicked off? It's honestly spectacular, especially especially playing this on a low-resolution screen back in whenever I was playing this. It does feel so cinematic and you feel such a part of this enormous machine that's just crashing down around you. I mean, I can only imagine how cinematic it felt then because considering it's a 1998 game, I was there with my mouth hanging open in 2021. It's just as engaging as it was just it absolutely just as engaging as it was. So during this moment, you're actually briefly transported to Zen, aren't you? The alien planet. Now, obviously, looking back, you realise this because you actually do get to visit Zen more permanently a little bit later on. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. And I remember thinking, is this like a hallucination of Gordon's? Is this something that... Because you just get these like little almost snippets. And one bit is when you've got all those vortigaunts like in a little semicircle, the creepy cricket creatures just staring at you. And I was like, 11-year-old Ben was brave. <laughs> Interesting that you use the word vortigaunt though, because that's never mentioned in this game. Exactly. That is actually a point I wanted to make uh, about Half-Life on the whole is that I, at one point during my experience playing this game, actually opened up the PlayStation 2 case and found the booklet because there was so much that the game doesn't tell you. And obviously I am lucky enough that I'm living in the year 2020. And um, I mean, I'm unlucky for many other of the same reasons, but I uh, have the internet uh, for better or for worse. And I'm able to kind of go on and actually see what these creatures are called and see what the guns do and stuff like that. But it's very old school game logic in many ways in that you just don't really know <laughs> what they are. They're just sort of there. Um, and I can imagine when you were a kid, you probably had these kind of cute nicknames for them, you know? Like, hmm. did you know that they were called head crabs? Did you know they were called vortigaunts? Well, the the reason that they have, they have names not in the game itself, but they all have names in the files. So oh, if you get access to the modding kit, you do get access to all of the all of them and all of their AI and all of their code and everything. I see. The name for them in the original Half-Life is Slave. Oh, interesting. That in itself is, I find, I don't know, that gives me the tingles because it's almost like a very meta thing. It's outside of the actual game. No one's meant to know that. Mm. So it, it almost makes it feel more classified. That's really cool. And that does lead into the story as we progress further into the series as, as you'll you'll see as we go on but they are at this point somewhat enslaved oh my god that's yeah of course with the factory in zen yes okay well we will get there so obviously all this has happened uh gordon is now fighting for his life this is where we grab the iconic crowbar there is something really 
uh, I don't know, almost um, desperate about fighting for your life with something like that. Like this kind of blunted melee weapon that's just sort of, I said to you at the beginning of this podcast, I was whacking that thing left, right and center. <laughs> clang, 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 clang all over the shop. And it makes such a satisfying noise. Oh, that squish when you like put a head crab down. Yeah, it's a moment you never forget. When you first get the, get the crowbar, you first smack the first head crab. You will never forget that moment. Can I ask you a question about this bit, though? Absolutely, go for it. Did you dump all the scientists down the lift? Because if, if you go up and you press the you press the elevator button to call the lift... I think I did. Oh my god, yeah. yes, no, I did. <laughs> I thought you meant, like, had you physically picked them up? No, you're right. Oh my god, I did. I thought, was it meant to happen or could I have avoided that? I don't think you can. I think if you... if you, oh, you can no. smash through the door and keep climbing, but they fall eventually. But if you press the elevate button, then it is your fault that they die. Oh my God. Yes, I remember. Because you literally are like, come on, come on, elevator, come on. Because at that point, I think you mentioned in your notes, like it's a clear, almost alien influence, isn't it? From like the head crabs mm. and the zombies. It's yeah. very, very Ridley Scott. And you're just like panicking, pressing this button. And then, yeah, all of a sudden you hear, ah, and all the scientists fall. <laughs> And they make this big squelch when they hit the ground. Oh, well, I remember you saying to me when we first started talking about it that some of the sound effects have just burned into your brain. And I completely see why, because even for the last couple of days, having just finished it, I have this sort of feeling in my brain where I will literally start thinking about something and then the sound will play because <laughs> <laughs> the sounds are incredibly well designed. There was a vent in my in my secondary school in like the main corridor. There was a, an air vent that looked exactly the same as the air vents in the original Half-Life. Mm. And at a certain point I realized that and I was just like, that, that a head crab's gonna come out of that. One day, it's gonna come out of that. <laughs> They are probably one of the most infuriating enemies I've ever encountered in a game. They fill you with horror, more so, to, you know, personally than some of the bigger, more heavily armed enemies, because they just, they're unpredictable. Like, they, you know how you drop a rugby ball and the thing goes mad? Yeah. Like, it's kind of like that. Like, you, if you let one of them just get the drop on you for a moment, you'll lose so much health. Like, the amount of times... I cleared enemy after enemy, waves and waves of soldiers, but then one head crab would take me out because it would spin around like a ping pong ball and you just like, you're whacking it with the crowbar. But the more you panic, there's something, you know, Half-Life manages to do with the panicking of the swinging of the crowbar <laughs> that actually manages to make you feel more afraid. You just see one and you just dread. The way they, li they lift their little arms up and they come towards you, it ain't for a hug. They are... Very, very small and very hard to hit. Yep. In, in in a way, it teaches you ammo conservation because it teaches you don't even bother trying to shoot them, just whack them. Although, if you're if you're slightly scared of this these ones, um, I'm just looking forward to your reaction to Half Life Two. That's all I'm going to say. Oh my god. Okay. So we've got the crowbar, as you pointed out, one of the most iconic melee weapons in all of gaming. Once you're making your way through the offices, you also spot if you're very um eagle-eyed that the guy from the intro mr blue suit and his little briefcase mm. is there and uh did you try to shoot him i didn't try to shoot him what happens he is bulletproof okay and that's 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 uh that's actually quite poignant in a way because actually even the the scientists and the ai aren't bulletproof are they you can absolutely slaughter every single human you come across if you want to apart from a couple that are needed but once they're once they've done their purpose kill them <laughs> 
can tell what you did. But yeah, he if you, if you try and shoot him, he is 100% bulletproof. You catch him spying on you. I actually, I'll, I'll get to this more at the end, but I went back and watched all of the G-Man appearances at the very end just to kind of see the ones I'd missed. But I did catch him during uh, episode three, uh, Unforeseen Consequences. Chapter three, should I say? Don't say episode three. You'll get a lot of Half-Life fans very I angry. know, I know. <laughs> I was just thinking that. You can't say the word three in a <laughs> podcast about Half-Life. So you make it through to chapter four, the office complex. This is where you're you're trying to get to the surface. Scientists are dying left, right and centre. I can't remember where it is, but there's that hilarious bit where there's a scientist hidden in the dumpster, <laughs> refusing to come out. And he's just like, you're going to have to leave me here, Gordon. <laughs> this is my hiding spot. And I'm not moving until the situation is drastically improved. They're all there hiding from the aliens, but... Never fear, because the military are on the way to save them. Gotta love the military. Literally always the good guys, with no exceptions. You've encountered quite a lot of zen creatures at this point in your, in your way fighting through the complex. Favourite alien and least favourite alien? I really like uh, the little, you know the little explodey dogs? They're called hound eyes. Hound eyes! I love them. They look like a pug uh, had sex with a, with a, a leg of lamb. You know, like a... <laughs> like a, a like a, like a ham bone, you know what I mean? <laughs> I just feel like if you could tame one, they'd be really good pets. They're like, yep, yep, yep. The little, yeah. the little, oh, they're so cute. They don't even do that much damage. They're actually sweet. <laughs> For some reason, in Black Mesa, they have upped the damage that they do a lot, and they're a lot more terrifying. But in the original, they're just really cute. Yeah, I didn't feel like they were much of a threat. The, the you know, the, um, the Vortigaunts weren't too bad, providing you were strafey and uh, on your toes so that you could avoid the lightning. But mm. generally, like, the, the head crabs scared me the most. Actually, the hound eyes were, I was like, oh, they're fine. You can shoot them quite quickly before they have chance to do their EMP thing. Yeah, they're not, they're not too much of a threat. Although there are some areas later on where there's quite a lot of them. And oh, God, yeah. As, as a sort of a combined force, the aliens are quite effective, but on an individual basis, not too bad. Least favourite. I mean, headcrabs are iconic. I can't say that headcrabs are, are anything other than amazing. But they would cl class as your least fave to run into an event. Yes, 100%. <laughs> oh, and we've forgotten the uh, the classic, what I referred to as um, string mouths. The things that I, I'm not entirely sure what they're actually called. You might have to enlighten me. Oh, the, um, the acid spitting things. I think uh, their name in the files is bull squid. Oh, no. What are the things with the, um, uh, like the, they suck you up? They're in the ceiling. Oh, uh, the bar barnacles. Barnacles. And there's a lot of good set pieces in this area as well, where they have scientists deliberately set up to just run straight into a barnacle and get dragged into the ceiling. One of the things that Valve does very well, and more and more so as you go on to the further games and Portal and so on, is they always show you something before you have to deal with it. They always show you what you've got to do. You're absolutely right. They will give you a little bit of a, a visual and then expect you to put two and two together. I just overheard a secure access transmission. Soldiers have arrived and they're coming to rescue us. So as you say, there's no way that the military could be bastards, right? Right. Right? They rock up. Chapter five. Uh, we've got hostiles. They are the Hazardous Environment Combat Unit, or... Uh, Heku, I suppose, and uh, they arrive on the scene and you very quickly realise that uh, they're not the heroes we wanted. Yeah, the first introduction to them, correct me if I'm wrong, but is uh, one of our hapless scientists running in going, Rescued at last! Rescued at last! Only to get immediately gunned down. Exactly that. Exactly that. He just, he charges in and uh, you obviously as well, you're just like, amazing, fantastic, these people will probably be allies to some degree. 
nope. Before you know it, the Heku are out for you and they are shooting everyone. Like, at one point, I'm pretty sure there's a guy who's like, Take me with you. I'm the one man who knows everything. And then he just gets shot immediately. And it's it's funny, but it's also like, damn, like that's cold. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes unsaid about the Half-Life story, but you you can infer a lot just from this chapter and how brutally they are. I mean, it comes over the announcement. Uh, the the announcement PA. This facility is now under military control. It is. No, I don't want to use this word, but a complete lockdown. Too soon, mate. Too soon. One thing that I, uh, I think again, I, I mentioned this to you uh, across text the last few days when I've been playing, but the kind of guttural noises that the Heku make. Uh, I mean, they're not aliens, as far as I'm aware. They are just like military blokes. But there's something really low res about the sounds and the voices they have that actually makes them somehow as horrifying as the aliens, or at least to me. Every single time I heard, go, 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 or like, Freeman, or, you know, uh, the, we've got hostiles. It really scared the life out of me. They are scary. Their voices are these deep kind of radio yeah. style voices. And again, just as, a, as an insider sort of technical point, the way that was done is rather than having individual voice lines, each word is an individual sound file. Ah, I see. That means, and that, that allows them to create this, the impression of a very smart AI that will say, you know, he's on the left. And it doesn't oh. quite match, but it matches close enough and it saves a lot of um, bandwidth and file size. That is so cool. That's amazing. And it adds to it. it actually, that sort of stagnant way of talking, that almost um, uh, Twin Peaks-ish way of like idiosyncratic mm-hmm. speech actually serves with the deep, low-res, sort of very guttural noises they make, makes them in a weird way less human. I don't know if that was, I mean, obviously a design choice to kind of help them uh, save space, but also I loved the fact that they felt more monstrous in some ways than the aliens did. They do. As I said, they feel they are brutal and they're brutal to fight. Mm. I, I went into this when we when we decided to do this. I went into this thinking, oh, Half-Life, I can probably finish that in like a few hours. I've played that like 10 times. And I forgot how hard they are to fight against. I mean, I played it on medium difficulty, um, like as I as I have done in the past. But it's just the way that they will they will take cover. They will flush you out of cover. They will mm. destroy your cover. They are smart and they feel smart infuriating to fight and when we get to um surface tension Mm. boy oh boy was that a chapter that i really was glad to see the back of (laughs) so we make it through to chapter six which is blast pit so this is the sealed off missile test silo that's become a dumping ground for black mesa's toxic waste uh, at this point, you've had run-ins with the army who are killing everything that moves, including scientists, um, as well as the aliens. They're just like, they do not discriminate and they definitely, uh, you know, will pick a fight with you if they see you. But now you're about to come up against a new monstrosity, the tentacles. What can you tell me about this? I think this is this is really the moment where you think, oh, no, this isn't just a like as much as Half-Life has impressed you in the previous couple of hours. Mm. This is where you really have to think. And this is where it really becomes a a brainy shooter. 
as well as just a very good shooter. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more there. This was a real defining moment for me where there is an extremely cool set piece and a very interesting mechanic in that you obviously have to throw the grenades down because the thing can hear you, uh, but it can't see you. So you have to sneak around it using grenades, well-placed grenades, to uh, detract its attention. As soon as it hears the explosion, it will start pecking and sort of, you know, throwing its, uh, its claws out. And you can then get around it. And that was something that I don't think many other games have done even now quite that well for 1998. I was like, this is really clever. And I'm really enjoying the, the change of pace. I suppose the, the concept has now been revisited in things like A Quiet Place. But back then, I can't think of very much. I, was, I wasn't exposed to a whole lot of films like A Quiet Place because I was very, very small uh, and not allowed to watch them. <laughs> But it does have a very unique feel to it, this chapter. This was where I started to take it way more seriously. Um, and it really impressed me with uh, with Blast Pit. And once you manage to uh, fire the rocket, obviously that burns out the tentacles. Uh, you manage to stop it from growing any damn larger, as one of the security guys says to you. And uh, we're on our way to chapter seven, Power Up, where we see... An even bigger, well, probably not a bigger creature, but a creature that is definitely one of the scariest things you've come up against so far. And that is the Gargantua. Yes, it is. Uh, when I texted you a while ago saying, yeah, I'm just playing through Half-Life, having a break because I've got to a scary bit. It was it was this bit. Oh, was it? Was that the bit? This was the bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. What was it like when you were a kid? Terrifying. I, there was something... Something in my brain about being chased in a video game. Oh my god, I'm the same. It's why I can't play Outlast. Mm. Literally, I, I don't mind if I have something to defend myself and I can go up against it. Even if I die, I can't be chased without anything to defend myself. I cannot be chased. That's why I started playing uh, Amnesia many, many years ago. Uh, and yeah. I have a save game where my character has been locked in a cupboard for the past seven years. <laughs> I'm never going back. It's so funny you say that. And actually, um, other Ben, Ben Craig, who I've been doing some previous episodes of the podcast with. A wonderful podcast guest, to be sure. Wonderful podcast guest. He is the same as me. Like, we we played Alien Isolation together. We've played Outlast. And we just can't. It's the thought of, like, the moment when you need to run. I, yeah, I just cannot deal with it. And uh, this was very much igniting that fear in me because the gargantua. Yeah, because that is exactly how you have to deal with this thing. Exactly. You can't, you can't take it on one-on-one. Uh, there's no way. It's it's too strong. It's too heavy. Um, there's just nothing you have at this point in terms of your ammunition that's going to do a dent in this creature. So you have to power up the generator and then you find that dying security guard, don't you? Who's like, you know, just just go or whatever he says. And then you have to do the turntables so that you can get the cable car out, um, the tram out and then go from there. But the uh, creature, the gargantua, you cannot kill it with guns. You have to just like run it into that electrical yes, like force yes. field thing, if I remember right. Power Up's quite a short chapter, um, but the gargantua bit is definitely something that really stays in my brain, and I can imagine it would have terrified me as a child. So I feel for 11-year-old Ben, wherever he is, reaching back in time to give him a little hug. He's still scared. <laughs> he's, still, he's still in the cupboard. <laughs> still in the cupboard after seven years, yeah. <laughs> So chapter eight, on a rail. This is one that I uh, found particularly memorable because it's quite different to a lot of other chapters in that 
you are on a tram for pretty much the whole thing. And uh, you learn from a security guard that you have to like launch a satellite, which the Lambda science team, we hear of these guys who are like a, a different, uh, even more secretive somehow section of Black Mesa. Uh, they can reverse the effects of this cascade that's caused all the aliens to flood in from another dimension if you launch this satellite. So... Uh, annoyingly this doesn't really come to fruition so it does feel like a bit of a red herring in terms of the narrative yeah it really does it really really does but the whole thing ends so wonderfully this this chapter on a rail did drag a bit in terms of the going round and round on the little tram i did get lost quite a lot um but it's really impressive how big this area is like you know again for the time one of the things that it does very well is to give the impression of being in the guts of a real place. Yes, yes. There's a lot of little dead ends and areas that you don't need to go to. You might find a few bullets there. There's not, but it does reward exploration in terms of giving you that that feeling that this is a whole facility and you are a very, very, very small man in a very large place. I got a bit lost here. I went around and around in circles. You have to shoot those little um, signposts, don't you, The um, to kind of change the rails and stuff so that you can go different ways. And it's very clever, again, because so much of it looks the same it doesn't actually feel smaller if anything it feels like it could go on forever yeah and actually interestingly just to to pop back over to the uh, black mesa uh channel for a second um they cut this area short oh really there's actually there's a lot less time spent here and the whole uh as you say the whole changing tracks by shooting the signs Mm. doesn't happen that doesn't exist you can't do that oh um, it is instead replaced by some more Half-Life 2 style physics puzzles. I see. I don't know why, but it is. Well, I guess that might be a personal preference for the the, the makers of um, of Black Mesa. Because I didn't think it was, it wasn't like super tedious, but I must admit there were moments where I was like, oh God, I've got to go on this bloody tram again. I don't know where I'm getting off. Um, and the military here, I mean, we talk about them being tricky. They were some really tough firefights in this section. This is where they start to set up turrets. Oh my God, yes. And start to have like emplacements. And I think this is the first time where you start to see graffiti with your name on it. Yes, I found that. I thought it was like a glitch. I went through one. Again, this is what I love about and Half-Life does so well. It makes it feel weirdly meta and self-aware like the game is kind of watching you the whole time like because you walk through and you you know you don't really have any association to the military besides the fact that you know they've been called in to deal with this incident and you see something like freeman you're dead scribbled in graffiti on a wall you're spelt y-o-r-e because hilarious um and um, yeah it's just i remember seeing that and being like they know who i am reports of this manic crowbar wielding ridiculously fast incredibly strong scientists seem to have got out to the rest of the military you can assume that there were one or two survivors from some of the previous encounters but the fact that they as a as an entire military force are scared of you yeah yeah one man and again this this one man theme comes up again throughout the series but this is where you first start to feel like gordon might not just be a normal guy there's something about him you know at the beginning it, it does, if anything, try so hard with the narrative to make it seem like you are one in many because you obviously turn up, you don't see yourself, you know, as a reflection anywhere. So you don't really know if you're wearing, you know, the same kind of uniform as, as the other many scientists, you know, those ridiculous ties and what have you. But you do feel like a cog in a machine because there's loads of people all there, most of which are too busy to speak to you even. 
And it makes you feel like, well, I'm just a grunt. I'm just one one man. I'm one cog in a machine. And you feel like you're one of many. And then this gradual spectrum begins to happen throughout the game in which it almost becomes apparent that Gordon is very different from everyone else and is therefore... segregated in some way from the rest of of this facility uniquely qualified in some way and I don't know what way that is maybe that becomes more apparent I don't want to spoil Half-Life 2 for myself but yeah that seeing that graffiti and realizing that like not only do they know who I am but they hate me they are very very uh intent on killing me at the end of uh on a rail I'm sure you find some of the Heku who are talking about you and they kind of, you know, say uh, he's been killing our guys. So maybe you're right. Maybe they just they've realized this madman called Freeman is one of the sole survivors of Black Mesa who's going through killing everyone. And they are just like weirdly childish and that they're scribbling his name on the walls. Um, but they really want you dead. And yeah, it becomes more of a personal vendetta than it is just like them wiping all the people out of this facility. You think he was responsible? Sabotage, maybe? Yeah, maybe. All I know for sure is he's been killing my buddies. Oh yeah, he'll pay. He will definitely pay. Yeah, it's less of a uh, it's less of a cover up and more of a revenge mission for them at a certain point. And that is that is borne out in opposing force as well as Freeman becomes this sort of distant antagonist figure that your your colleagues, your squad mates, I should say, probably is the better word, but they are talking about him and about this guy that's been killing loads and loads and loads of your men. So it, it does have this sort of, yeah, an antagonist is the exact word I would use. That's really clever. What so, so they're chatting about Freeman murdering all these people, kind of almost, I don't know if you've played, I don't want to spoil anything, but if you've played The Last of Us 2. I certainly have. Yeah, that kind of like reverse psychology almost, where it's like, oh God, you're the monster on the other end. Yeah, it's not, not quite to the same degree, but no, there is no. certainly a, uh, a fear of Freeman because he is ridiculously powerful. You don't look as if you have any trouble killing things. You are a one-man army. Anybody that you're going to come across is literally, you could kill them yourself. You know, their life is that futile that they are be less so how like somehow less than an npc <laughs> absolutely i mean i don't know how much you tried to use the uh, npc security guards i did occasionally they're basically useless yeah 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 they, they sort of just come along and then they'll shoot a head crab and be like that's one for my trophy cabinet <laughs> i'd love to hang that over my fireplace you know if i had one i think this really comes from the fact that half-life exists between as you say games before half-life and games after half-life yes yeah because that sort of one versus everybody, that's Quake, that's Doom, mm. that's Wolfenstein. Whereas now if you were to go into a, you know, a more modern campaign, whether you're looking at uh, like a Call of Duty or a Titanfall, which is amazing, uh, something like that, then you do have a bigger world and you, are, you tend to have some sort of AI support. So after we have uh, had some more encounters with the HECU uh, or the HECU, whatever you want to say, we then arrive at chapter nine, Apprehension. This is where we meet the Ichthyosaur. This fish is, as one scientist very uh, astutely notes, not from terrestrial waters. (laughs) I mean, just take a look at the thing. It's got little arms like a T-Rex. I don't remember it being this way. And I think this might be something to do with the running of a very old game on a newer PC. 
but the sound seems to be incredibly sped up now, which only makes it scarier. It was really, like, it was very challenging as a fight in general because obviously you're underwater and you have the crossbow and you're trying to, like, basically back up and avoid it while trying to shoot it because you get lowered in on that cage, don't you? Like a shark cage. Like a shark cage, and that is really intense. But, yeah, the combination of its movement, the low poly graphics, and that sound would have made me just shit myself as a kid it's it's like a kind of dogged breathing isn't it like yo 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 i, I can't even make the sound i'll, I'll make it's it for the podcast a, yeah i can't I, I was gonna try and do it and then i thought no i don't have the vocal cords necessary to even begin mimicking that <laughs> and it, it's all on you like if you get um attacked by it i mean obviously it's quite low res you go through it like it actually comes through you and you sort of see yourself traveling into it. And it is so much of that makes it scarier. Like they say that, you know, better graphics make things uh, more realistic. But if anything, I feel like there's an argument for Nemesis in Resident Evil scares me way more in the original than it does in the remake. So and also you've got to bear in mind the fact that Gordon, Gordon doesn't have the biggest lungs, I guess. No, no. He doesn't survive very long underwater. No, big heart, small lungs. Big brain, small lungs. <laughs> you know what they very say about crowbar. small lungs. <laughs> yeah, big crowbar, very small lungs. So uh, we also encounter, no relation to Call of Duty, Black Ops, which I had to Google who they were, but like they're these really skinny, sleek looking assassins that go jumping around and apparently they're trying to eliminate even the, the HECU, the, the military. So who are these guys? Do you find out more about them in like a later game? Honestly, kind of no. There is information to some extent in some of the expansions, but then to some extent they're not entirely canon. So ah, it's, okay. it's difficult to say really, but yeah, it is this sort of, at what point do you stop assassinating the person who knows something? Like, is there someone coming after them? It's like a Russian doll, isn't it? Like the military, the scientists know too much, so they get killed by the military, but the military just by being in Black Mesa know too much, so they get killed by the, the Black Ops assassins that have been sent in here. Uh, who kills the assassins? Who watches the Watchmen? <laughs> Whatever's happened, whoever sent these guys in, clearly, uh, you know, the Heku are not doing their job. They haven't eliminated Freeman. They failed to neutralize him. The aliens are still running rampant. We arrive at probably my favorite bit in the entire game because we talk about being cinematic. This just like took the biscuit. You are caught by the Heku. You get this kind of cutscene where you're being like dragged along. They mention that they want to take you topside for questioning. Where are we taking this Freeman guy? Topside for questioning. What the hell for? We got him. Let's kill him now. The next chapter begins and the walls start moving and you're like, oh, okay, I'm here. Obviously, they've at first I thought, oh, maybe I'm just captive somewhere. Maybe this is like my prison cell. They've put you in a sodding trash compactor. Clearly one of them had seen Star Wars. And this is the only time, I think, where the control is taken away from you. And it's this moment of panic because you think, I've got no weapons. I, I think you have very little health as well at that point. You have a little bit, a little a little sliver of health. The trash compactor starts to close. You're trying to find your way out of it. It's incredibly intense, incredibly like 
adrenaline fueled. The first weapon that you're reunited with is your beloved crowbar. And I think there's something to be said about that. <laughs> Never keep it far from your heart. Gordon starts looking through. Um, this is the this area is residue processing. So it's like there's furnaces and there's conveyor belts. A lot of tricky platforming here, especially on the PS2. Lots and lots of first person oh. platforming, which is definitely, and it gets worse as the game goes on, as I'm sure you're going to say to me. But this is, this is where it starts to become less fun yeah the jumping around what is great about this chapter is this is again the feeling of just being in the absolute belly of the beast at this point yes and all these machines there's an i don't know if you've seen galaxy quest i haven't actually no there's a uh so long story short but it's uh there's a scene where sigourney weaver's character is running down a corridor and there's all these slamming um slamming pylons coming in from various directions and she's screaming, like, why did you even put these here? Who is supposed to go down this corridor? <laughs> I, and it does kind of feel like that to an extent. Belly of the Beast is the perfect way to describe it. It's just, it's all happening around you. And every single time you move anywhere, you've got to be careful that you're not going to get mashed, chopped in half, uh, ignited in a furnace, uh, maybe thrown into like a vat of toxic waste. Like, it's a part of the game. And I mean this in a respectful way that you can smell. You really can. Even with the even with the lower res and not particularly detailed graphics, yeah, the the atmosphere is real. I mean, essentially, what they did was throw Gordon in the bin. Yeah, and you can really feel that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a gross part of the game, and you you actually feel like you need a shower after it. Let alone Gordon. Gordon makes it through residue processing, and we get to chapter eleven: questionable ethics. This is where you wind up in like a secret part of the facility, isn't it? Where you, it turns out that the the Black Mesa scientists have been collecting specimens from this alien world for a lot longer than we originally thought. Like, this is not an isolated one-off incident. They've been poking this hornet's nest for quite a long time. It's not our fault, I tell you. Nature made them. We were only studying them. Yeah, this is where you really realise that actually this has been going on for quite a while. The first, I think the first thing you come across is a whole new type of alien that you've not even fought before in a cage. Oh my god, yes. Um, which one is that? Uh, it's the, the, the grunt, the sort of the armoured ones with the, um, I forget what the name yes. of this weapon is, but the, the, uh, the homing Yes, it's um, the hive hand? Hive hand, that's the name of it, yes. The first time you see a grunt, by the end of the game, you're actually killing them left, right and centre. But when you first see one, it's really scary. It feels like the gargantua again. And uh, it's in like a, a tank, isn't it? And you see it and you're like, your brain just knows. You're like, that's going to break out of that tank. There ain't no way that that's going to stay in that tank. But you have to push the button and then make a runner for it before it starts basically shooting you in the ass. And I'm not sure if this is by design. I have a feeling it probably is. But when I entered this room, I was really low on health, really low on ammo. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you just made it through the guts of the facility, having just been thrown in a trash compactor. So I think at this point, you feel like you're slogging it a little bit, not just in terms of like the, the gameplay, but also I think you feel like Gordon has been through a lot. Really not been a good day at work for him. We've all been there and uh, been so grateful to come home and plonk ourselves on the sofa. But I feel like he's got a way to go yet. Possibly possibly the next 20 or so years in, uh, in real time. Oh, poor Gordon. My baby boy, Gordon. So at this point, yeah, you get the, the Tau cannon as well. This is the uh, awesome gun that runs on uranium. Put that down. It's a prototype. It's much too unpredictable. Don't overcharge it. Don't overcharge it. And then I think it's, I think it's one of the security guards. What do you, what do you mean overcharge? <laughs> Blasts a hole in the wall. 
this is what I was I was also saying earlier in that I had to read the book at one point because, you know, in a lot of games, you get these kind of like demo. I mean, I've been playing Gears of War lately with Ben. Every time you get a new skill, a new weapon, anything, you get like a sort of not a fully blown tutorial, but something like, oh, this is how it works. Hold down this button to do this with a Tau Cannon. The guys who just were playing around with it have blown up. Yeah. You pick it up and you're like, what do they say about overcharging it? Like, you just, you haven't got a clue and you're just kind of holding it down. And yeah, if you do let it overheat, it uh, it backfires, doesn't it? It will absolutely kill you. But again, that's that, it's that Valve design of show, don't tell. Yes. It's, this is what could happen. It's up to you to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And it's a great storytelling mechanic as well. I mean, that is something that as a writer, you know, you learn all the time. You know, you learn that, storytelling is such a big product of show don't tell you know anybody can it's way more rewarding if you can figure those things out for yourself and half-life is very good at dangling that carrot of like ah you should have realized what this was you know you should have paid attention and maybe you'd know we're still on the trail of the lambda complex the lambda scientists who can supposedly put an end to this whole thing this is where we finally make it through this little bit of the facility and up onto the surface and we get what is arguably one of the toughest chapters, I'd say. At least it was for me. Definitely. Um, definitely. And also the largest in the game. I mean, it is not just in terms of like length of the chapter, but also just the scale. It is. And it's one of the most technically impressive because Half-Life, the original Half-Life is based on the Quake engine, as in Quake 1. That was not designed to do this kind of large environment at all. So the fact that they squeeze that in is is really impressive for the time. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. I had, I had no idea that was the case. You know, when you play it now, does it still feel quite as vast and expansive as it did? Because I imagine as an 11-year-old, that would have been huge. It does It, it does still have that feel. I mean, having, having, again, got involved with some of the mapping and, and the modding back in the day, I can sort of see the Matrix a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But if you let yourself get immersed in it, it does a fantastic job of doing so. And the way that they, because you probably have noticed that every like 10 steps you take, it's loading, loading, loading. Yes. And yes. the reason for that is because all of the le actual levels in the game files are really small, but they're just joined together by these constant loading gates. So that creates the impression of this vast, vast area when in fact you're actually only in maybe like two or three rooms at a time. And games, obviously, these days are very clever with the way they do it. You'll often get an elevator. Ah, yes. Uh, won't you? Which is a, a clever or loading. Mass Effect. Yep. Or, uh, <laughs> or I think Arkham Asylum does it as well. Um, yep. Lots of games do the classic elevator trick. But um, yeah, they disguise their loading screens very, very cleverly. This was really impressive to me. I thought this chapter, surface tension, was a lot. And uh, I found it challenging as hell, but it was a nice palate cleanser in the way that we've been in a lot of uh, greyish kind of beigey corridors and labs and, yeah. you know, facilities indoors. And all of a sudden you're above ground in a desert war zone. Well, this is where the the game changes to be something different. It does this two times, in, in my opinion, because the first sort of third of the game is very survival horror. Yes. Yes, very much so. This part is much more, I mean, I suppose Call of Duty. Yeah, yeah, or Medal of Honor or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, something like yeah. that. You're taking cover, you're uh, trying to capture positions from the soldiers. 
you find a lot more use in this part for things like the grenades and the trip mines and things like that or certainly i did mm. yeah no i did too you have to be a bit more strategic because not only have you got uh you know soldiers left right and center you've also got the aliens to contend with i mean a lot of this is like there's the heku versus the zen forces so not only are you kind of like against all of them i mean you are the third <laughs> third player in this war yeah and uh, they're fighting each other, which can work to your advantage in some moments. But all I will say, screw that helicopter. <laughs> screw uh, that helicopter. That is the first time you're going to say this about a Half-Life game, but I promise you it's not the last. Oh, no. Oh, do helicopters just get worse and worse? Uh, yeah, something like that. There's also something else that happens in this chapter that gets worse and worse. Okay. You know, there's a, there's a bit where you go into a bunker and one of the scientists says something about how uh, you know, he's afraid to move. It's full of munitions. Oh, yes. You go in there and it is full of explosives. Every single corner is explosive, 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 explosive. If you make a wrong move, you die. I'm just going to wait out the catastrophe in here. If you intend to go on, then I beg of you, proceed with extreme caution. Absolutely, because I remember, obviously, you don't really, again, it's something that Half-Life show not tell. It will say to you, you know, let's if you when you go through that room i think the scientist says you'll see what i mean and when you get in there you see a tripwire and you're like oh mate i'll just back up and shoot it and then when you shoot it everything blows up and you're like yeah. ah crap it's not a case of i have to just shoot it i have to get around it and this is something that valve does again just to mm. just to say that but they <laughs> what what they are what they will do with these games or what they have done i should say being that these have happened in the past is they evolve on these ideas. So this is this is the original iteration of this. It gets much, much cleverer. Especially when physics get, gets involved. I'm sure you can see where we're going with this. Actually, I think, you know, your point about Half-Life sort of changing uh, genre almost at this point, you know, from survival horror this this uh, thus far in the game to now literally Warzone, Call of Duty, action movie is really apparent. And actually you end up, uh, what, ends this chapter is you using an airstrike to bring mm -hmm. down certain areas and i mean very call of duty very very call of duty it feels very different to uh to the rest of the game thus far and that room full of explosives yeah it was a real challenge that was a strange moment if anything because you were so used to running through running and shooting everything that moves that actually it almost had to kind of grab you by the collar and go whoa 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 you can't blow your way through this you have to be strategic it, it makes you stop and think it's the same with the blast pit it's the same with so many other areas that it does just it brings a cerebral element to what the the formula at the time like if you think about maybe quake quake 2 you just you just run you go you go you go go with this you have to stop and think you have to plan tactically it is cerebral and you kind of go ah actually i can't i can't just blow this up i have to figure out a way to get around it um and there were some brilliant moments even when um you know you didn't just go in all guns blazing but maybe you found a way to place a satchel charge somewhere that killed everyone without you actually having to to spare a bullet and it was there were more there was more than one way and it wasn't always blasting through you can brute force a lot of scenarios but it's not always the best way to do it and as, as before exploration is hugely important in keeping you in bullets at all during this chapter because they're actually really sparse if you just go down the main route. I think I got the security guard um, to follow me a lot and he kept um, opening up these uh, these big rooms for me and being like, here's some ammo. It's like Toys R Us. Well, well done keeping him alive. Oh, like, yeah. In, when I played it, he just kept charging head on into tanks. So. <laughs> 
So finally, chapter 13, you make it through surface tension. If you're me, this took like so long. And then uh, we're abandoning the base and the Heku have this radio signal coming through that you catch actually right at the end of the chapter that basically says, Do you copy? Forget about Freeman. We're abandoning the base. If you have any last bomb targets, mark them on the tactical map. Otherwise, get the hell out of there. The aliens are slowly turning the tide. We're seeing more aliens and less, uh, you know, less soldiers. The place becomes increasingly ruined. This is where it really starts to become a, well, what, how are we possibly going to stop this from happening? Yeah, because the military, you know, even though they weren't necessarily on your side, you kind of had your hopes dashed early on that they were actually going to help you. But you figured that they would at least stand the chance of holding these forces back. And even, you know, throughout the whole of surface tension, Half-Life plays with you because there are moments where an alien will be killed by some soldiers and you're like, ah, oh, thank God, you know, they are doing something. Mm. But now they've they've pulled out, their forces withdraw. So our last uh, ditch effort to, to end this thing is um, up in Chapter 14, the Lambda Corps. It's all on Freeman at this point. So Freeman makes his way to the Lambda Complex. This is the place where Black Mesa actually developed the teleportation tech that allowed the scientists to travel to the alien planet, which we realise they've been doing backwards and forwards the same way that I go to Sainsbury's for quite a long time now. They've been travelling to Zen and they've been sending in uh, soldiers or, you know, grunts in hev suits the whole time. You've arrived here and it's like, well, I'm the last man standing, so what do you need from me? How can I help? We suspect there is an immense portal over there created by the intense concentration of a single powerful being. You will know it when you see it. I hate to say this, Gordon, but you must kill it if you can. Of course, you owe us nothing, Mr. Freeman, but you've come this far. You know as much about these creatures as anyone. If you're willing, my colleague is waiting for you at the main portal controls. He will open the gates for you, Mr. Freeman. Do hurry. Essentially, you turn up, they go, um, yeah, we, we don't know what to do anymore, but you've got loads of guns, so why don't you go and try and fight this massive alien intelligence and just, you know, see what you can do. It's weird because, like you, we said before, you start off, Gordon's a grunt, he's not really that important, he feels insignificant, he grows in presence, both as a character that you're playing and you're familiar with, but also with the wider lore of the game as you go, in that the scientists start whispering about you. Every time you get to a checkpoint, particularly as you're approaching the Lambda Core, they're like, ah, Freeman, it's you, you know, we've heard about you, we've told them you're coming. And you are the saviour in this instance. You've rocked up and a scientist who you speak to within the Lambda Complex actually says one of my favourite quotes in the whole game. And it is... I can see you already know a great deal more than any one man is supposed to. I think that really does just complete the Russian doll, in a way. You are very much the last the last um, line of defence against this now. And for, for whatever reason, you have surpassed everyone else in this facility. Whether that's been some kind of divine intervention on your on your back or not, you are special in some way. And you've made it through... And the presence of Gordon has kind of spread through and now it's up to you to take the next step and go into the alien planet through a portal to effectively try and kill the life form that's keeping the portal open. So this is kind of, for me, where it changes again from a survival horror to a Call of Duty to more like a Doom, like a, just a straight up shooter. When they're setting up the portal to teleport you there, it is just a big Doom style arena. 
It is. And you've got those, um, uh, oh God, the Zen masters, those little floating things that are literally like little hoverflies that kind of get right up in your grill and throw those little yellow balls of energy at you. They are a pain in the backside. I imagine in particular on a PlayStation controller. They were the hardest thing to hit. I, I thought that the, um, the hound eyes weren't too bad. They give you a little bit of time. You get like a kind of short uh, interval before they actually really attack you besides just running up to you so you're grand H- head crabs are obviously you know they are a nightmare uh whatever platform you're playing on but the vortigaunts also are not too challenging because they sort of like almost uh react to you and you can be quick enough my reactions were were speedy enough to get them before they zapped me a lot of the time the um you know the grunts again challenging but you just kind of do the whole strafey strafey out of cover into cover out of cover into cover but those bastard Zen Masters were really, really hard because I did not have the accuracy on joysticks. This, unfortunately, is where the game starts to dip in quality. Again, as we get into Zen, the cleverness just seems to fall away a little bit. It's, you know, it's replaced by an incredible landscape and, and all this innovation, but there's something missing at the, the final chapters of Half-Life. Yeah, I did. I did feel like a bit of a drop occurred there, to be honest, because obviously, yeah, you, you it almost feels like it builds right up to you stepping into that portal um, in order to go to Zen and obviously fight, um, you know, the creatures that are in there that are keeping this whole um, portal open and, and, you know, basically preventing you from shutting this whole thing down. And I guess one thing I want to ask you before we get into Zen and the world of Zen and its design is, you know, Gordon's character has come a long way, as we've discussed was he always destined for this or did he just get lucky? Was this pre-planned? What do you think at that pivotal moment when you're about to jump into the portal? In my mind, Gordon is very much, uh, let's, let, let's use a, a future quote, the right man in the wrong place. It's, it's very much that he is, he just happens to be, because uh, I think it's mentioned somewhere that he is a, uh, a regular participant in the Black Mesa Decathlon. <laughs> which explains why he's so strong and so fast. Yeah, he's physical. Yeah, he's and, capable. Yeah, just happened to be in the exact place he needed to be with the capabilities that he needed to have. The thing about Gordon is that his actions are not going unnoticed. I guess that's maybe why there is that slight relatability to him as well, in that he's not this doomslayer style hero that is like completely devoid of humanity. He was just an unfortunate set of circumstances. Pretty much. I mean, that's that's certainly my my opinion, my interpretation. Others may differ. No, I like it. I like it. I think that's that's very similar to how I feel about him, to be honest. We're almost there, Freeman. Get yourself in position. Getting into Zen then. So this is chapter 15. It's a very short chapter in that it's basically just one long platforming nightmare that I don't really want to talk about because, my God, I had to quick save on every single freaking ledge because yeah. it was just so damn difficult. And I mean, I actually, I was doing a lot of Googling and sort of trying to see how other players had found it, both on PlayStation and PC and everyone. Uh, I think there was quite a few people on Reddit who were just like, I just put God mode on because I could not be asked with that. And I was like, yeah, fair. Gravity is different now. So all the jumping that you've been used to for the whole game is now different. That is infuriating. You think, oh, I can make that jump. Yes. Or, oh, no, I'll, I'll land here if I jump at this point. And you never, ever land where you expect to land. Yeah, yeah. And you've also got to then you learn to use the long jump module which is only seen in this chapter. You've then also gone from these uh, intricate sort of lab and underground environments, which feel very real and explorable to a completely alien landscape, which like it, it is a, it looks good. Like it's an, it's an interesting place to be, but it is 
possibly intentionally, but it is overwhelming. Yeah, massively, massively. One thing I will say to Zen's credit, though, is that I like how it's not a typical sci-fi alien world with, like, whizzing spacecraft and tall silver polished buildings and robots and, like, futuristic technology, you know? It's kind of more like base organic matter um it, it's deeply alien on a on a more biological level and i quite like that i like the fact that we didn't end up in some cyberpunk you know very much a star wars world we ended up somewhere very very scientific i completely agree it is much more uh like zerg from starcraft there was a game called spore wasn't there kind of reminded me a little bit like that as well it definitely has a has a a tone that is less conventional for a sci-fi alien planet in this particular uh, realm as well. But then your brain starts to wonder, well, you've seen like metallic armor on some of these creatures. You've seen them with, in some cases, handheld weapons. Where's that coming from? Yeah, yeah. And we, I mean, we kind of do get to a factory-ish setting a bit later on uh, when we go into the, the, the final, well, penultimate chapter. But before then... <laughs> We've got to confront... Um, a bollock on legs. A bollock on legs, yeah. Jesus titty Christ. This thing. If you thought a head crab was bad, imagine a massive one, right, with a bulbous sack hanging from it that sounds like an elephant that stubbed its toe. No, that's the noise. That's the noise it makes. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying what a fight. It's a three-stager of a fight. And this is Gonark. This is Gonark. Is it Gonark? Gonark? What do you say? Um, I imagine the references to the word gonad. Initially, playing it back in the day, found it terrifying. Now, because I knew I knew this was coming, this is a, obviously something that I have deeply embedded in my memory because, I mean, you try forgetting it. It's not going to happen. I found it... I didn't find it too hard. I actually found... Uh, well, I, I had a, a bit of a glitch as mine continued on um, where the thing ended up getting... Uh, in a different way, it ended up getting stuck. Um, so it did nothing while I killed it which was a bit of an anticlimax. It's so funny that we've had the same experience because clearly this armoured bollock is just a big glitch fest. There is a glitch where obviously Gonark does not uh, follow you. Like she, there's a, there's a third part of the fight, isn't there, where she basically goes into a cave and uh, yeah. you're meant to like slip down, you fall beneath a web and then she's on top of the web and you're underneath it. Right. That whole section, she can get glitched so she doesn't actually come down onto the web. So she can be stuck in the little cave bit at the intro of that section. Or she can just do what happened to me where she does fall through the web. You manage to shoot her down and like, you know, her sack's wounded and all that stuff, which is a disgusting phrase. And then you do a lot of shooting and she just stands there and doesn't die. And I thought that the boss was just really like really tough because I pretty much emptied everything I had into it. Like we're talking five rounds of RPG, like rocket launcher. We're talking satchel charges. We're talking grenades. We're talking the alternate firing mode of like the AK. I had no ammo left by the end of it. And then it just wouldn't die. And I was like, what the hell? And then I was like, right, you know what? I'm going to get the hive hand out because that obviously can't cost me any ammo. And I just sat there and started like shooting it. And I was there for about five minutes and I was just like, this is this has got to have glitched. So I reloaded it and the exact same thing happened. She got stuck again in the same area. She's still spitting at you, 
But annoyingly, you've ended, like you just know she should be dead. The amount of times you've shot her, she has to be dead, and she just didn't die. So in the end, I had to throw all my explosives. You just like spam them all near the wall that she stood next to, near those pink things that are kind of waving around phallically, and then uh, the ground explodes and you go down to the portal that way. So I did manage to get past it, but I felt a bit cheap, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think we 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 both really know amy that this uh this was just the pc gaming gods getting their revenge on you it was it absolutely was they were like ps2 music magpie and i mean i i even did it a few times because i was adamant that like i didn't want it to be one of those things i'm quite proud as a gamer and i didn't want to be like oh i glitched it i didn't actually kill it kind of thing but i definitely would have killed it it was it was shot to shit it was just stood there it wouldn't it wouldn't do anything that's fair that's fair to be honest it actually really screwed me over for chapter 17 because i had no ammo because i'd literally thrown everything at this creature hoping it was going to die and um yeah it just glitched both times so uh revenge from the pc gods is bittersweet so chapter 17 interloper this area was hard as dicks and i i didn't enjoy it i'll be honest i did not enjoy this area the first half is interesting because did you okay question did you go in and start shooting what to the uh, the factory area? Yeah. Um, I didn't actually. Well, I, I tell a lie. I did at first. I shot the first Vortigaunt because it was like there. But then after that, I noticed they were doing something with the barrels. So I didn't bother. Yeah, they're not actually hostile unless you attack them ah. in this in this section, at least up until you reach a certain point. Because then the Zen Masters start coming in. And all I can say is thank God for quick save. Yeah. I really, really struggled with this entire section. It was a real challenge, especially on PlayStation 2. Yeah, quick save is massive and mandatory here. And this was one of those areas because there's a whole there's a whole bit where there's this big spiral that goes all the way down and all the way up and you and you can check every level for ammo and then couldn't find where I was supposed to go next. And I spent probably about 45 minutes going up and down this thing before I went back to the other room and then found the lift that I was meant to travel up i think i did that as well you know because yeah you go in there and it feels really you've got this sort of like very um creepy music in the background and like the zen masters are floating around there's vortigaunts everywhere and you climb up and down it thinking that you're going to get to like a penultimate area that's meant to be yeah yeah i did the same thing because it's like red isn't it it's kind of um that hue of like, oh, this is definitely it. We're at the crux of the the hive now or whatever yeah, it is. And it's not. It's just a room where you can get extra ammo. Although, creepy music mentioned, I think this is the first time you get a uh, a vocal message, don't you? What did it say for you? What did you kind of pick up on? Uh, I can't remember the specific, like, the specific phrase, but it just talks about, I think, I think the first one is something like, you are all alone. One thing I do think is cool about the overarching storyline is that it almost does travel a spectrum in itself. It it starts human to the point of like sheer humanity, like we're talking microwaves and, and coffee cups and ridiculous ties. And it ends in a world like this where you have no idea what anything does. It took me so long to work out that those healing pools and those little elevator things actually gave you some health back. It really does channel that like journey from a human world to an alien world really really well throughout the whole course of the narrative that's a really interesting point so the factory you mentioned that these vortigaunts are actually slaves that's what they're called in the editor for half-life one um the i think the word vortigaunt only started being used for half-life two where they actually are 
talked about by some of the characters. Um, and that does sort of feed into, in particular, the story uh, for Half-Life 2. But the fact that they're wearing these kind of shackles and this big neck thing. Yes, yes. Um, and like, you can go through the game and shoot them over. But if you, if you know that's what they're called, then it makes you think of them differently. That does add an extra dimension, doesn't it, to this alien world in which you sort of assume that everything, there isn't like any kind of hierarchy. They're all just creatures. It's like, like I say, base organic level. But clearly there is some kind of societal structure here. Yeah, I mean, again, this is, it is explored a little more in Half-Life 2 to an extent. These things are certainly back and you do learn a lot more about them. But here, because everything is so removed, there's no one to explain anything to Gordon. And it only gets weirder because the final boss, I mean, I actually thought Gonark was originally because I had no idea. I think you are supposed to, aren't you? And then uh, you get to, am I pronouncing it right if I say Nihilanth or is it Nilahanth? I have no idea. Pronounce it however you like. This is the true final boss. This is the sentient creature that is actually keeping the portal open, preventing, you know, the kind of the aliens from buggering off effectively. One thing I did want to ask you is that what do you feel like, clearly this this invasion's happened because of the resonance uh, cascade at the very start of the game, but this invasion, what's in it for him or her or it or they? What's in it for Nihilanth or Nilahanth? Like, what does it want from humankind? Well, this this again is uh, is a thread that continues into the, the second game and beyond. So I don't want to go too far into that. Right. But my okay. kind of, my impression of, the overall story is that there wasn't meant to be an invasion. Right. I think that this is, I mean, you, you do find little pockets. You do find others in HEV suits throughout Zen. Um, and you know that they've been researching it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. When you see all those littered bodies of like various people who've been, you know, sort of in, obviously been sent into Zen uh, way before you did and weren't as lucky to survive, you realise that we've been kicking the hornet's nest for a long time. If anything, we are the people who have been, are we the true invaders? Are we the true invaders? Are we the baddies? I think we're the baddies. <laughs> have you noticed but... there's a skull on our helmets? <laughs> Maybe they're the skulls of our enemies. Maybe. But is that how it comes across? I mean, it doesn't say next to the skull, you know, yeah, we killed him, but trust us, this guy was horrid. In my version of this, in my, in my head canon, it is, it's only the fact that the resonance cascade happens that allows them to teleport to Earth. Yeah, I agree. I do agree. I think that, and then, and then this creature takes the opportunity to launch a full-scale invasion. Yeah. But I don't think that this was meant to happen. No, no. And I think the idea of like what you were saying before about Gordon being, you know, the man, the right man in the wrong place or, you know, whatever that kind of uh, sentiment is that it's it's not preordained. It's very much a, a it's a chaos theory approach to it all. I think that's probably very accurate in that this was an opportunist attack that Nihilanth thought, oh, OK, I'll just invade and I'll see what I can get from it. <laughs> So you end up taking this bastard on. 
he is quite tough, but also there is a real pattern emerging here. It didn't take me too long to kill him, but it was just the frustration of like the way he fights you. He keeps sending you through these portals into different rooms. Each of these rooms are filled with different enemies, so you end up with like Zen Masters and Vortigaunts, and at one point even a Gargantua is in one of the rooms. Yeah. And you'd kind of have to just like stay alive long enough to get back to him so that you can try and attack him and destroy the crystals around him so that his brain opens up and then unleash heavy fire onto that brain. Obviously, you have to shoot the alien baby in the brain. Shoot the alien baby in the brain. How many times have I had to say it? <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's almost a cliche at this point. As much as Zen is a bit of an annoying place to be, it's still interesting because it's still, as you say, it, it's unique. It's You're not just in a room shooting a thing. You know, this isn't the end of Doom or, or other games of that mm. era. You are still able to... You can, t you can use the teleporters tactically to get extra ammunition if you're clever with it. Yeah, exactly. It, again, it's, there's a cerebralness to it, isn't there? Yeah, and it just it's, it's really nice that that is the thread that follows through, is how can I think my way around this problem? Yes, Gordon's incredibly physically tough, but I, that's not going to save the day by itself. What a man, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. Yes, he is. I know. <laughs> you wanted to see if I'd do the final bit. So, uh, so yeah, Gordon uh, finally manages to take it down. How did you, what was strategy did you use? Because I was reading up on the different ways. It always fascinates me how people approach boss battles. And some people were saying that they rode through all the portals and did it the conventional way. Some people managed to get on top of his head and then just like threw loads of grenades or threw loads of, um, you know, some uh, ammunition down on it. Or they... Uh, did the whole hide-and-seek tactic, hidden behind the pillar. When he emerges, you shoot him then. What did you do? So my strategy here is always get as high get as high as possible and just everything, starting with the, I think it's called the glue-on gun, the big, like, Ghostbusters-style thing. Yes, yeah, we didn't mention that, did we? Yeah. It makes things explode. And the guy literally says to you one of the funniest quotes in the whole game, you don't seem to have a problem with killing things. <laughs> <laughs> No, and no, no, yeah, no. It's, it, it's a Ghostbusters gun that just turns men into meat. So visceral. Um, but yeah, so my, my tactic is essentially use the jump pads, get as high as possible, and then just starting with that and working down the list, how many bullets can I get in its head before it teleports me somewhere else? Nice, nice. I did the whole teleportation thing as well. I just, I destroyed the crystals pretty quickly. Um, and then I kind of just like, yeah, rode them through. And luckily the Gargantua ended up moving. So he wasn't quite as close to the jump pad in that final teleportation room. So actually, I yeah, I managed to kind of, I guess, luck it a little bit there. But he was still challenging. It's when he when he fires those purple bolts, they are devastating. You really have to watch out for those. Um, but I did it, and I was really chuffed because it was PlayStation Two, baby. Yeah. Uh, the gods allowed me a brief moment of respite. So uh, yeah, I did it. I finished the game, and this is where things get interesting. It certainly is. Suddenly. Who should appear but our favourite briefcase wanker, G-Man. So G-Man gives you a choice. His choice is that you must work for him. He, he's basically been observing you this entire time through the game on behalf of a mysterious employer. And he offers you a job. He says, you know, it's come to our attention, Mr. Freeman, that you are... Uh, basically great at killing extraterrestrial beings and you have a unique set of skills. Liam Neeson would be jealous. So we would like to hire you and employ you for a very specific opportunity. We don't really get any more than that. But he says to you, you know, if you choose to accept, great. If you don't, 
I can offer you a battle you have no chance of winning. Rather an anti-climax after what you've just survived. Bearing money's taken away all your guns at this point as well. What a brilliantly meta thing to do at the end of a game. Just be like, okay, so I'm in charge here. Hmm. He sets out his stall very clearly and he says, you know, if you disobey, if you don't want to come with me and work with my employer, then so be it. I'll transport you to a dimension where you'll die. So you don't really have a choice, but the whole uh, dialogue, the whole of this like moment is meant to be this epic decision, but you actually don't really have one. So G-Man calls the shots. It's very clear from day one. He is a, he's a force to be reckoned with. Time to choose. The thing with the G-Man, and actually I, I think it's, it's fantastic in a way that Half-Life is a series that has absolutely no mysteries, there are no cliffhangers, everything is really neatly resolved, and by the end of the uh, final game, you'll have no questions whatsoever about the plot. Ooh, okay. Um, that was a lie. <laughs> um, what's interesting about him is that, yeah, he's been, he's been following you and watching you, and quite literally standing in the same room as you having a, uh, a fight at some points, and yet, how did he know that you were going to do that? I have a lot to say about G-Man. Like, first of all, I just want to know, like, what did you do with your quote unquote choice? Did you did you walk into the portal the first time or did you choose to see what this battle you have no chance of winning actually looks like? I had to go and have a look and see what it was. I did as well. You don't even really see anything. You're just kind of like, it's a room of like grunts, but just their creepy silhouettes. And then the next thing you know, it's like, cool, okay, clearly you had no chance of winning. So you'll never even, yeah. you don't even get the dignity of a fight. And then you just get the subtitle, uh, was it, Sub Subject Terminated. I think that's it. <laughs> that's the, the right choice, is the good ending as such. This is what Gordon does canonically. He accepts the G-Man's offer and he walks through the portal. And I have just so much to say about G-Man. I just, first of all, where does the phrase, where does G-Man come from? Is it, is it a file? Yeah, again, I believe that was his name in the editor. Right. I don't, I don't think that is actually said ever in the series right. to the best of my knowledge okay okay that's just a, a name that has come out come about sort of in the fan community because that's what he was called in the in the editor that's really interesting i'm i i actually at one point in my notes i mistakenly referred to him as mr g, mr. g. and i don't know if you've <laughs> ever seen summer heights high hello boys Welcome to Mr. G's room, G's room, G's room. Welcome to Mr. G's room. Come inside. Oh, I, I don't even know where to begin. There's something about G-Man that is just like, I mean, I imagine as a, as a Half-Life fan for as long as you have been, you have even more of a kind of respect for the ambiguity of this character. But I just think everything about his design is absolutely incredible. And one of the biggest things for me is his speech. So... It's not just the dialogue, it's not just the things he says, but his voice. Like Michael Shapiro, who does his voice acting, he manages to nail that subhuman way of speaking. That kind of like the tongue clicks, the breathlessness, the hissing. He just manages to get that strained tone to sound so almost reptilian yeah you know it's he's very clearly in my in my view just from like the very first encounter with him in half-life one he ain't human you've proved yourself a decisive man so i don't expect you'll have any trouble deciding what to do if you're interested just step into the portal and i will take that as a yes otherwise well 
I can offer you a battle you have no chance of winning. Reptilian is an interesting word. The thing that reminds me of him in a more recent game is the, uh, the Thin Men in XCOM. It's probably a direct inspiration there. But yeah, he's 100% alien, possibly lizard. I mean, again, a character that becomes much more interesting and much more enigmatic, um, especially in the more recent additions to the series. Because again, spoiling absolutely nothing, but because these are very large spoilers, but you learn some of his more interesting uh, abilities, shall we say. Nice. Yeah, no, he's definitely not human. 100% definitely not human. And I mean, one thing as well about his eerie omniscience in Half-Life 1 for me was that I spotted him a few times spying on me. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, at the end of the game, I'll go back and I'll see all the different times that he actually was in the room with you or was watching you and you had no idea. And Ben... (laughs) Watching it back, like, I just really felt the ambition of the game to make you feel unsettled by his very presence. I was had goosebumps from the amount of times, like, it freaked me out on a really deep level. There were moments where he was watching me and I had literally no idea. And the game, the game itself, like, the game as a character here was observing me the whole time. And fair enough, you know, in this day and age with the internet, I can totally just hop on YouTube after playing it and go, oh, look, there's all the G-men, you know, the G-man appearances that I missed. But in 1998, players were being un- like observed unwillingly. And there's something really creepy about that. Like, he was always there, completely outside of my conscience. And for the internet to know that now is cool. But back then... How many people played it and had no idea they were being watched by him? There are there are a lot of appearances. I don't I don't actually know all of them. Some of them are very obvious. Yeah. Um, but I I mean you're certainly playing it back in the day. My first instinct was point and shoot. Yeah. And yeah. you shoot, bullet ricochets off. Man walks away walks walks away down corridor. Yeah. In fact, this is actually this is actually right at the beginning. Um, when you first meet the hound eyes, I think is is the first time you see him after you get hold of a gun. Yes. Um, and you can go and you can you can go up to the room that he walked into because that I think is a room where a scientist can unlock and get you some extra ammo and stuff. Yes. Um, and as far as I remember, there's no other exit to that room. So weird. I mean, there's one bit where he, and I actually did, did do this without watching it back. I, this happened to me during my playthrough. You approach a door and he is uh, at the door, isn't he? And you stare at each other through the glass and he just like adjusts his tie slightly and then just turns and walks away. And it's so wonderfully enigmatic and unsettling. And I mean, I love surrealism. Like I'm a huge Twin Peaks fan and David Lynch fan. And I love things that just are slightly uncanny, not quite right. Could be an office worker. Very clearly something wrong with this guy. And actually there's also one point where you see him talking with a scientist in a room and he looks like he's kind of arguing with a scientist, like he's very, very animated with his movements. And I don't know what that's about either. I mean, I guess we never will. But um, one thing I was going to say, is it the same G-Man each time? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yes. Is that a possibility? Are there are there several? That's a very interesting point. Maybe, maybe. I mean, certainly we are in a universe here in Half-Life 1, at least, where there are only uh, there's only four or five models for all the scientists. So possibly that hadn't that hasn't occurred to me before. 
oh man honestly his omniscience is just such a a strong part of the the narrative of half-life for me like you can't wait to find out more and to me he is the biggest unanswered question by far i'm i'm very excited for you to <coughs> dig into this further because there, there is more but yeah, there's, there's still, even now, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Obviously, the next game in the series for me is going to be Half-Life 2. Should I should I play any of the expansions, anything like that? You absolutely can. If you want more of the classic Half-Life gameplay, which, as we've probably explained for however long this has gone on for, uh, <laughs> is still very, very fun. Yes. They are, yes. They are good. They, int- they introduce, as I say, other, uh, other elements. There's a sort of a grappling hook mechanic in one of them, that sort of stuff. Really, they are optional. Optional, but very fun. For me, uh, while we've been talking, I've reinstalled Half-Life 2. Yay! Um, so that's where I'm going next. I have also purchased Black Mesa on Steam um, because it does have controller compatibility. So, mm. you know, your girl's going to go through it that way and experience that. I did actually watch the Gonark fight, um, a clip of it from Black Mesa. And my God, it's so much more scary. So much more terrifying. The final line is something that, again, I intrigues me so much because I think the more I've thought about it and uh, pontificated on that since completing the game, the more I think that that line itself is important. Wisely done, Mr. Freeman. I will see you up ahead. You know, the G-Man says to Gordon, uh, wisely done, uh, I'll see you up ahead. And at the time I was like, okay, cool. You know, I'll see you up ahead in terms of like... uh, you know, will join forces. But actually, the more I think about that, the more I'm like, that's significantly meta as well. Because not only is it kind of like a nod to, I will see more of you in future games, but it's almost like a wry wink to the idea that he will see you up ahead because he's always watching and he's always up there, whether you know it or not. Absolutely. The thing about that portal is, I believe in canon, it leads directly to the start of Half-Life 2. Oh, oh my God. You go play it now. Do it. Go play it. I might have to. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. I have got to go make dinner. So unfortunately I can't. Dull, boring human things. Yeah. If only we could teleport, time travel or whatever the hell it is the G-Man does. Blimey, what a game. Loved every minute, still checking under my bed for head grabs. It was surreal, it was scary, it was funny, and it's found a firm place in my heart. Hopefully, all you members of the PC Master Race out there will forgive me for deciding to enjoy it on PlayStation 2 rather than my PC. But honestly, for me, a keyboard and a mouse is the battle I have no chance of winning. So I walk through G-Man's big old portal of PlayStation-shaped hope, and I am not sorry. Thanks, as always, for listening, guys. If you want to get in touch, you can do so at MyGameFiction on Twitter or at MyGameFictionAddiction on Instagram. Always love hearing from you all and getting your game recommendations for future episodes. If you've enjoyed this, we'd love it if you could leave a review or tell a mate. I actually read back some of our older reviews the other day and it just really made me smile. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll be back again very soon with some more chunky episodes on the likes of Kota 2, Half-Life 2 and Resident Evil, along with some smaller drops for events like Gamescom and gaming news in general. Chat again very soon, guys. Bye!